Good morning, everybody. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O Lord God, you led your ancient people through the wilderness and brought them to the promised land. Guide the people of your church that following our Savior, we may walk through the wilderness of this world toward the glory of the world to come. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, verse of the week is Matthew... Oh, let me move this out of the way. Matthew 6.26. Let's speak this together. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Look at the birds. When Jesus says, look at the birds, he's saying more than, get out your binoculars and uh, go out to the refuge. Um, you should do that if you haven't because it's nice to look at birds, but he doesn't just say, well, you know, take a look at the birds and look, oh, well, there's an indigo bunting. Oh, look at how pretty that is. There's an eagle. That's not really what he sees, what he means by this. Look is to look and know. And to look and to know is to understand. Um, so what he wants you to do is to understand a point. So here's the beginning. Here's the end. This is the point. Okay? So look at them and learn from them. Know something and understand a deeper truth from the birds. I, I just want to highlight birds of the air. What should that make you think of? Pardon me? Yes. Oh, okay. But I mean specifically the phrase of the air, birds of the air. Yes, okay. Let me ask the question in a better, less confusing way. What passage of scripture should this make you think of? Quoting verbatim, birds of the air. Isn't that from... From Genesis, yeah. Isn't it redundant to say birds of the air? Because when you think of a bird, let's, let's be honest, when you think of a bird, your first thought is not, well, an ostrich isn't a bird of the air. Hey. Or, or a penguin. Yeah, or a penguin. Your first thought when you think of birds is a thing that flies. No, penguins are birds. They lay eggs, yeah. Uh, and they regurgitate their food. Look at the birds of the air. This is creation language. God creates the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. It's important that you get this little taste of creation. Look at the birds. What about the birds? They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. What is this the language of? And, and yes, it's the language of farming, but it's something Deeper, again from Genesis, 
In fact, it's in the, gospel, or the Old Testament reading for today if you want to cheat. Sowing and reaping and gathering into barns. What is this the language of? What is part of the curse of the fall? By the sweat of your brow, you will toil. You will grow. So this is an important distinction. God puts Adam and Eve, he puts man and woman into the garden to do what? And what would we call that? Caring for it. He, he, he gives them a... He gives them a job. He gives them a job. He puts Adam and Eve in the garden to work. But there is a difference between work and toil. Work is a good thing. Toil is a bad thing. Toil is burdensome. Uh, this is toil. Sowing, reaping, gathering into barns. This is part of the curse of the fall. This is what man does. Well, look, the birds don't toil, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Your. Who's talking? Jesus. Jesus is talking. But he doesn't say my heavenly Father. He says your heavenly Father. So already you see that there's a personal... Oh, dear. There is something personal between you and the Father. Because not only is he Christ's, he is yours. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Why does he feed them? Creation language. Because if God creates, God must sustain. God cannot create, God cannot beget, and then abandon. God cannot make his creation and then take a step back and watch it burn itself down and say, well, that was a failed experiment. I'll try again another time, I guess. It, God has, in the act of creation, God not only brings things forth, but he ties himself to them. So when God makes, he can't simply walk away from what he has made, even the smallest of things. Your heavenly Father feeds the birds of the air. Why? Because he loves the birds of the air. Because he made them. Because he loves them. Are you not of more value than they? That is, the birds. Are you not of more value than they? Of course you are. The answer is yes. So the assumption is then, if God takes care of the birds, how much more does God, A, love you, and B, take care of you? A lot more, yes. Uh, you are of much more value than them. So, now here's the big question. What is it that God is going to do for you? Sustain you, and he must do that. Why? Because he created you, correct, yes. Because God has made you, God sustains you. He, again, the act of creating, the act of begetting, is also the act of binding. God is bound to you. Just like parents are bound to their children. You can't have a child and then just say, well, I brought you into this world, uh, have, good luck, my job's done. You're bound to your children. 
just like God. You are of more value than the birds, so obviously the Lord is going to take care of you. Now, does that mean that you're never going to be hungry? Does that mean you're never going to be thirsty? Does that mean you're never going to encounter times of hardship or want or poverty? No. But what it does mean is that the Lord is always going to sustain you through whatever it is that you are in the middle of. And this is where I encourage you to start to think of things a little less carnally and also a little bit more spiritually because what is the greatest source of sustenance for you that God has provided? Do, tell me what the word is. Yes, Christ. Okay. Again, when I talk about the word, I, you, you have to think of it as more than words. The word is not a thing and it is not a collection of things. It is a person. So the thing that God gives you that sustains you above all else is Christ. So that even in the times of hardship and poverty, when the scoffers look at you and they say to you, well, where's your God now? Didn't he say you were better off than the birds? Well, look at that. The birds are eating and you're going hungry. What does that say about your God? And if you know that God does provide, God gives you something of greater value even than the food he gives to the sparrows, which is his own son, then how can you respond to that? Your God isn't great at all. He feeds the sparrows, but he can't feed you. He saved others. Let him save himself. And your response is the same as Jesus' response to Satan. Again, everything just works today uh, because this is the gospel. For invocabi, the beginning of Lent is always Jesus' temptation. And Satan tells him to turn the stones into bread, and what does he say? Pardon me? No, man does not live by bread alone. Get thee behind me, Satan, is the last one. And then he also says it to Peter. How would you like that, to have your Lord look at you and say, hey, get behind me, Satan? Anyway, uh, yes. So, well, who, where is your God now? You're going hungry. You're in poverty. He said he'd take care of you just like he takes care of the sparrows. And you say, yes, but man is different than the sparrow. Man is worth more than the sparrow, and I have something that is worth more than the food that he gives to the sparrow. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And what is the word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Christ! Ah, yes! See, you're on the same page. You're tracking with me, okay? Questions about that? Fabulous. Let's speak this again. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? What is the first article of the creed? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What does this mean? He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, land, animals, and all that I have. Pardon me? Every time we do the creed and I split it up like this, every Sunday that I come in and I start prepping, I say to myself, 
Bill's going to continue, so I need to remind myself. Which honestly is a compliment because you know your catechism, and that's a good thing. Uh, I would love someday to get to the point where we're doing the creed and the whole Bible class just keeps going and I have to say, whoa, whoa, because that would, that would be a joy for me. Uh, that's the kind of interruption I love. So he also gives clothing and shoes, food and drink, house, home, wife, children, land, animals, and all that I have. What does this sound like? Th I mean like catechism language. What, el what does this sound like? Two things, two things in the catechism that this ties to. Can you, can you recall? One's in the Lord's Prayer, one's in the commandments. Give us this day our daily bread. What is meant by daily bread? Daily bread includes all the things that support our body and life. So all of this is included in, but is not limited by what is meant uh, when we pray for daily bread. Where in the Ten Commandments do we see, again, another list like this? Pardon me? Yes, the ninth and tenth, and also the... What is the, what is the commandment that relates to the ninth and tenth? Yes, the seventh. Because coveting is a sin of the heart, and stealing is a sin indeed. Uh, so you covet and you steal. So the... Seventh, the ninth, and the tenth commandments protect these things that are given to you by God. And the first article of the Creed tells you that these are some of the ways that God provides for you because he is bound to you by creating and really because he loves you. And that's really what it means for him to create. He wouldn't create you if he didn't love. So the fact that he creates means that he loves, which is again why then he can't leave you or forsake you, he has to be bound to you. But it's also in daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Well, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So again, you have this understanding that, yes, the Lord provides me all of these things, and sometimes he will provide me with not as much as I think I would want. Sometimes he provides in abundance, and other times he provides you know, with with less than what I would like. Um, maybe uh, I wish that I lived in a different house that was bigger, but the house that I'm in is shelter for me and it works. Or maybe I wish that I drove a better car, but the car I have is sufficient for me. Or maybe I wish that I had uh, you know, more food or different kinds of food like the Israelites in the wilderness, but what I have sustains me and is sufficient. And that's really the, that's really the key to this uh, first article bit for this verse, uh, for all of this is what is sufficient? Now, it doesn't mean that God is going to say, this is sufficient for you, I'll never give you anything else. But it's sort of, again, it's like dealing with children. Do you sometimes spoil your child? Sure. Do you sometimes take, take the kids out for ice cream? Sure. Do they need that? Do they need the ice cream to sustain themselves, to live? No, they don't. But it's a nice treat. It's, it's above and beyond. So that it, the Lord does the same thing. Sometimes the Lord gives you exactly what you need, exactly what will sustain you, um, and other times the Lord gives you a little bit more because he loves you and he wants to spoil you. But you, he will always give you what is sufficient for you, and that is different from person to person. 
which is why you don't covet, because again, you are called to contentedness. If you really believe and trust that God is your father, that he does support you in your body and life, that he does give you your daily bread, that he does give you your first article gifts, then you cannot also look at another person and say, God is jipping me because they have more. You can't do both. See, so you have your choice of which path you're going to walk, the, the, the way of contentedness, which is the way that the Lord would have you walk, or the way of covetousness, which is the way that is not content with what the Lord gives, and the way that believes that what the Lord gives is not sufficient. That is the other thing when, when, when the person says, well, God sustains the sparrows, why, isn't, why don't you have more? Why is your abundance? Uh, uh, blah, blah, blah. When you say, God has given me everything that is sufficient for me. I'm not, I'm not out here for riches and wealth and luxurious meals. The Lord provides me everything that I need to live. And he gives me his son. And honestly, if I had the choice between the two, I'd have his son. So it's really easy to... In theory, I'll say. In theory, it is very easy to live a contented life as a Christian. It's very easy, in theory, to say what St. Paul says, which is, all my earthly gain is loss, uh, because it really doesn't mean anything. Um, I don't want to store up treasures on earth. Um, moth and rust is going to destroy it, and a thief might break in and steal it, but there's one thing I have that can never be taken away, and that's Christ, which is the ultimate sustenance for me. Okay? Uh, kids, you can go to Sunday school. Okay, any questions about that catechism or that verse? Where do the dinosaurs fit? Where do, where do the dinosaurs fit? With, in the, not in the birds of the air. <laughs> I, listen, I don't really want to get into this, which is not a, not, nothing personal, Nancy. I really don't want to get into this because I think if we get into this, we're going to be in it for the rest of class, and I don't want to do that. But who's to say that when Scripture says God made every <coughs> creeping thing that creeps upon the earth, that it doesn't include a dinosaur or a dinosaur-like thing? Who's, when's the last time that you stopped and th thought about what it meant in the time of uh, Noah about all the animals? It doesn't tell you what kind of animals it is. All you know is that there's a dove. It doesn't tell you anything else. That's because they don't want you to know that there were unicorns, but they missed the day. <laughs> um, so, yeah, maybe there were. Uh, in fact, um, I'm sure that the animals that we have now aren't the animals that were there in that time. You, if you believe that you can breed dogs, uh, then you have to believe that there can be changes in creatures over the number of years that have transpired since the flood. Well, I was going to say it, but I'm glad you said it for me, because then, you know. Uh, yeah, so it, if, we, if we can breed a dog in 25 or 30 years, think about what can happen in a couple thousand. All right. You know, we went down to that ark. Oh, yep. Uh huh. They were all like dinosaur uh, animals, or 
strange looking things? Yes. Yeah. Well, the, you know, if you want to talk archaeology, the fossil record indicates that the animals were slightly different. There's relationships, but they're not the same. And it, you know, then when you have a species that populates and then goes their separate ways and does their separate things, of course, there's going to be changes that take place. So, yeah, the, the animals that we have now certainly aren't the same. But, but see, this is an exercise in reading the Bible because uh, one of the great things about the Bible, which I have mentioned before, is that you can apply the Bible to any, or the Bible is applicable within any context. So um, the Bible never talks about Jesus, what he, what he looks like, really, other than saying he was a Jew from Nazareth and he was not very beautiful to look at. That's it. So when you go to a Korean church and they have a Korean-looking Jesus hanging up there, is that blasphemous? If you go to an African church and they have a black Jesus, is that blasphemous? No, because Jesus was, you know, when you look at the artwork of Jesus from the 1950s and the, the, you know, the stuff that CPH put out, Jesus has awfully blonde hair and awfully blue eyes. And you think, well, Christ applies to every context. Christ is man. And, and, and not just man in the sense that he is a man. He is man. So, sure, if you want to have a black Jesus because that's your culture, then do it. If you want to have a Korean Jesus because that's your culture, then do it. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. If you want to have the German blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus because that's your context, well, then okay. Because Jesus is for you. Um, if you want to know what Jesus really looked like, just go take a peek at the Shroud of Turin. Uh, <laughs> yes? I'm still hung up on the uh, penguin. The penguin? <laughs> Is it a platypus that lays eggs? Yes. Yeah, a platypus. A platypus is a mammal that lays eggs. A I got my mixed up. That's all right. Yeah, the, pe the penguin's a bird, but it can't fly. It's a swimming bird. Sure. I, I know what I'm going to get you for your birthday. I'm going to get you... No. <laughs> I'm going to get you a gift certificate to the Omaha Zoo. We'll take a field trip. <laughs> um, okay, it's a hymn day today, of course, but, but with all of the, with all of the <laughs> hymn days now, I've got some more to say to make it more interesting because uh, who can say I don't care about my people? So this is an illustration by William Blake. Um, if you... If you remember from Catechumenate, I said something about wanting to get Paradise Lost, a copy of that for the St. Jerome Library, but to get one with the William Blake illustrations. These are the illustrations that William Blake did. They're these sort of chalk. Oh, can I not zoom in? They're sort of a chalk uh, medium. I can't zoom in. I'm sorry. I was going to show you more. Uh, and he did illustrations for uh, the, the big poem Paradise Lost by John Milton which I had read to you a few weeks ago, parts of it. So this is another illustration from John Milton. This is from Matthew 4. This is uh, Satan commanding that Jesus uh, turn the stones into bread. So you can see Satan, and this is so beautiful. And if you can't see, take, come close and take a look after class. But look at Satan, who is depicted as a man, and he is old. He's got a beard. Uh, why do you think Blake would portray him like that? You often see Satan portrayed as a young man, very beautiful. Um, but Blake takes the less 
worn path, and Satan is an older fellow. Satan was there from the beginning. Yes, that's what it's highlighting, that Satan was there from the very beginning. So it's not wrong to say that Satan is beautiful, because he is, but it's also not wrong to say that he's old and kind of ugly, because that's also true. So this is very interesting to me, um, just from looking at the, the symbolism of religious artwork, because Satan is most commonly depicted young and beautiful, um, because he's alluring, that's part of it. Satan, nobody is gonna listen to a haggard old woman except for maybe Snow White. But, you know, typically, if, if someone's gonna be your best friend, there's someone who you look at and there's something about them, you know, they're young and they're beautiful and they just kinda seem to have everything together. You know, they have a sort of charisma that you can't, that, that you can't break away from. It's a, like a hypnotic charisma and that's what is depicted with Satan. But here, it's his age. I've been here from the very beginning. And Jesus is young. Look at that. You're young and I'm old. I've been here from the beginning. I am the person who can share some wisdom with you. I am the person that can help you. I know things. Let me help you. I am the kind old man who will befriend you and give you the survival tips in the wilderness. Okay? And he is pointing down. Here are the stones. Pointing down at the stones. And where is Jesus pointing? Yeah, he's pointing up. So immediately you have the contrast between Christ who points up, things heavenly, and Satan who points down, things carnal, things earthly. Oh, it's beautiful. And then you have this too. Where else is Jesus pointing? Can you see that? But specifically to his mouth. What comes out of a mouth? Okay, I was going to say, now don't be vulgar here. Uh, right, the word of God. The word speaks words. The word speaks words. Jesus is the word and the word speaks words. Here's another thing that I want you to pay attention to. One, or, uh, look at the difference in how they're clothed. Satan's wearing clothes. What does Jesus look like? It's, okay, so the, this is so beautiful. So the way that this is, you have to get kind of close to see it. He's wearing a robe, but the robe is like a see-through robe. So it looks like he's clothed, but you also see what's underneath the robe. And what is, you know, so what, what does it look like? It looks like he's naked. What should that make you think of? Uh, well, very good. Yeah, actually, it should, because he's crucified naked. But think back in time, not forward. Mm, way further back than that. Yes! Adam and Eve are naked. What is Christ? Yes, he's naked. Now, and who is Christ? The new Adam. So he does the things that Adam does, but where Adam fails, Jesus doesn't. You see that? Isn't that gorgeous? That he is there. And Satan says, well, I'm going to appeal to your stomach just like I did with your father. And Jesus says, ah, but I'm going to appeal to the word of God, unlike my father. <coughs> oh, it's so great. I love this. I love it so much. So yeah, William Blake. William Blake did some really, really great illustrations. Is that 
Uh, that's a really good question that I don't have an answer to. Yes. Um, let me just look. I, off the top of my head, I don't think that he did write hymnody, but that just could be me not knowing him. So if I was looking at this book that you're talking about, you want these illustrations in, uh -huh. Well, that's a great question. Such a great question. There is, oh, so good. I have a, a minor, my minor in college was in classics, which is uh, like Greco-Roman history mythology, that's classics. And one of the classes that I took was a class on myth and mythology. And it was a fantastic class. In fact, at one point, the professor was gone for two weeks because, oh, I just happened to be the head, or the head archaeologist at the, the site of Troy. And, uh, well, they found, a, they found a mummified corpse. So I had to fly over to France to this laboratory where they had the corpse uh, preserved so that I could examine the corpse for them. So sorry, I have to be gone for two weeks. Just out of the blue. But anyway, so this guy was teaching about myth and mythology, but also in art. So when you look at a, um, when you're looking at ancient Greek artwork, say um, black figure pottery, when you're looking at black figure pottery, and you can tell that it's depicting something, but the question always is, how do you know what it's depicting? How do you know what you're looking at? There are always tells. There is, uh, there is at the very least, a series of minor conventions so that you can draw you know, folks however you want, but there are certain things you have to include because otherwise without those, no one's gonna know what's going on. So Hermes, you know, the, the messenger of the gods, um, Hermes always has either his winged boots and his winged hat, and he's very often posed like this because that's what flight looks like in black figure pottery, <laughs> uh, or, he has a little wand called a caduceus. <coughs> and uh, so you can always tell if it's Hermes because of those little things. S like with, with Heracles too, Romanized as Hercules, but really it's Heracles. He always has his big knotted club or he's wearing the lion skin from the Nemean lion or both. So you can always tell what's going on. Now let's apply that to scripture and spe specifically the iconography that, and religious art that is associated with scripture. You go out into in, the narthex and you look at that picture of, or that, excuse me, it's not a picture, that icon of Jesus. You know who it is. You always can tell who Jesus is based on his posture and you know, not just because he has the big nimbus over his head, the big halo, but when you go downstairs in the, in the Sunday school chapel and you look at those icons, you can tell what's going on in those two based on the conventions. A naked man and a naked woman are Adam and Eve. Now here is a convention. Obviously Christ has the nimbus. The other thing is the rock. You have, you have one man who's obviously Jesus pointing to heaven and pointing to his mouth and you have another man pointing at rocks. There's only one time when somebody in scripture ever points at rocks, and that's in the temptation of Christ. Turn these rocks into bread. So there's a convention right there. Uh, that's how Blake does it, so you know it's Satan, because he's pointing at the rocks. And you notice that he is also pointing to his mouth? That's another thing too. He is pointing like this, and Jesus is saying like this. 
So that's another thing to pay attention to. Um, there are other depictions like this that you can find that have sort uh, other conventions. If you're looking at this in a book, the image would be affiliated with the text. So it would also be in the place where it's talking about the temptation of Christ so that the context also provides you with the knowledge of what you're talking about. Is that, does that help? Okay. Now, I have another image that I want to show you. Pastor, yes. You. When he, did you say that Satan said, I mean, in this picture, I'm going to try to appeal to you like I did your father? Is that what you said? Yes. Your father, Adam. Okay. He's, because he's appealing to the flesh. Oh, okay. Right. That's why Jesus is naked, because he's the new Adam. So when Satan appeals to him, Satan always appeals to flesh. Okay. So he says, hey, I remember a, a naked man in the wilderness. Deja vu, I've been here before. Hey, aren't you feeling a little okay. hungry? No, 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 sorry. And that was, that, I didn't clarify that. So that's, um, yes. Uh, yeah, it's because of his clothes. Okay. It's it's harder it's harder to see. The, it's a sort of a pastel chalk. Okay. The the tones are difficult to see further back. So, but it's because he's wearing clothes. He's got sleeves on. Okay. Um, I just think that that's great. Satan clothes himself, and Christ is there depicted naked. Because I am the new Adam. What do I have to be ashamed of? Oh. <laughs> Man, religious artwork is just. Great. You know, there's the, there's the book downstairs by the Full of Eyes guy, which we're going to look at in just a second, another Full of Eyes, which is vastly different from this. But the book is called Visual Exegesis. And of course, exegesis is the act of interpreting scripture. What does scripture really mean? Well, religious art always is exegesis because you can never just paint a scene. You can never just paint the scene and say, Oh, here's the scene of Jesus being tempted by Satan. You have to put things in like, okay, well, what does Satan look like? Once you've made the decision about what Satan looks like, you've already performed exegesis because you're already taking something from the text and expanding it and explaining it. So this is why religious artwork is so fabulous and one reason why every Christian ought to be uh, you know, a student of religious art. And uh, that's one of the goals of the library, is to have books of art. You can just sit and look at pictures of religious artwork. Uh, you know, I think it was Pope Benedict, whom I, I love. He said, never trust a theologian who doesn't love art, music, and poetry. <laughs> because they're not a real theologian. <laughs> And I think that that is wonderful. You know, if, you, if, a, if a theologian, if your pastor can't find the beauty of God in music, in art, or in poetry and, and literature, what good is he? No, but for real, for real, if your pastor can't find beauty in those things, I, I, don't, know, I don't know what to tell you. The answer, by the way, Bob, is that Blake is not in our hymnal. So... He's not in this hymnal. Uh, I don't know that he wrote hymns, none off the top of my head. Uh, now, let's look at this other piece of art. There's a lot here, but the, as you can tell, this is vastly different. 
vastly different. So obviously, what is this? Yeah, hand of Satan offering stones. Now that's an, an interesting difference, I think, between this one and Blake's depiction, because Blake's depiction, the stones are just on the ground and he's pointing to them and says, go pick these up and turn these into bread. But here, he's actually offering them. Here, come on, come and take these. You, aren't you hungry? Come here, I'm, I'm gonna help you out. I've got it right here. All you have to do is come and take it. That's, that's the scary part about Satan. And I'm preaching. That's part of the sermon today, actually. Satan, is Satan a roaring lion? Yes, but he's not stupid. If you've met a cat, you know that a cat never does any more work than it absolutely has to. <laughs> Wolves, oh my goodness, they are incredibly hard workers. Cats are lazy sacks. Maybe a cheetah, but a cheetah's basically a dog. So... Cats aren't going to do any more work than they have to do. And in the case of Satan, the danger with Satan is not that he is a predator, but that he is enticing, that he appeals to you, that he comes to you as your friend. Hey, you look a little down. Can I help you with something? Hey, are you hungry? You've been fasting. Here, just a little something-something for you. You know, tied, tied the hunger over. And you just can't. Boy, you know, he seems like such a nice guy. I can't imagine why, why God wouldn't like him. He's so helpful. Um, so there's the hand of Satan offering that. Now, this is just, again, it just this full of eyes. This, he's a Baptist pastor, but man, he gets it. This is the kind of Baptist I'd go out and have a beer with. I get it. Waka waka. <laughs> oh, dear. That's right, yeah, if I go, then it's off, yeah. Um, right, so Jesus is in what pose, what posture? Yes, not almost like, that is, yeah. He's, so he's posed like he's on the cross, which is a big deal. His nimbus here is, it is exaggerated to show the sign of the cross, and there he is in the pose. His robe is not white, it's... Red, yeah, which should make you think of blood, yeah, and the scarlet robe of royalty, too. If you are the Son of God, I am the Son of God. Now, um, right, so this is different. In almost every other occurrence, you're going to see that he has wounds, but he doesn't have wounds in this picture. This is for you, Marla. I, I always come back to this because I was so proud of you for asking the question about the baby Jesus in the womb having the wounds. Um, I was very proud of you for that. So here's Jesus, but he doesn't have wounds. But it, what does he have instead? His hands and his feet are dripping. It's like blood, but it, in this case, it's not blood. Why? Because it's water. Why would he be dripping water? Now think about the context. Carolyn, you're not allowed to answer. <laughs> think, think about the context of this. When, when is it that Jesus goes into the wilderness? Yes, right after his baptism. Remember that Mark's gospel says Jesus was ripped up out of the water, still dripping, and the Spirit chucked him into the wilderness. So here it is. He's still dripping, but I love the way that his drip, you know, the water dripping off of him is depicted because it's... it's it's depicted dripping off of him in all of the places that the blood would 
drip off of him. Of course, uh, highlighting the blessed exchange that takes place when Christ goes into the waters of baptism and takes on to himself all of our sins. Um, so the, the, the water that drips off of him becomes water that is in our font, and the water that we go in and soil is the water that ends up becoming blood in Christ. Now, the Spirit is going where? Into his mouth. Isn't that fascinating? The Spirit is going into his mouth from where? From heaven, yeah. Here it is going there down, and it's going into his mouth, and uh, this one I can zoom in. Look at that. This is my beloved son. Where did he hear that? At his baptism. And he's still dripping. He goes right from his baptism into the wilderness, and then Satan's temptation begins with the, the direct quote. What does Satan say? before every single one of the temptations. If you are the son. Yes, if you are the Son of God. And here it is, Jesus says, no, I live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. And what is the, what is the word that the Father has just said to him? This is my beloved Son. How can he say anything else? Satan says, well, if you are the Son of God, do this. And he says, I don't need to do that to be the Son of God. I live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and God has already attested to the fact that I am his Son. What is, what is changing rocks into bread going to do to prove myself as the Son? What is jumping from the pinnacle of the tower, or from the temple, going to do to convince anybody that I am the Son if they didn't hear when my Father announced it? What is bowing down to you and saving myself from the cross going to do uh, for these people. I am the Christ, I am the Son of God, and my entire job is to die. I wouldn't be the Son of God if I actually bowed. See, that's the, great, the greatness of Jesus resisting that particular temptation. If, uh, if you bow down and worship me, all the kingdoms of the world I will give you. He owns, Satan owns the kingdoms of the world. Jesus has come to redeem, which is to, catechism language, to purchase. He's coming to buy back, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, innocent blood, you know, holy, precious blood and innocent suffering and death. So he comes to redeem, to buy back something that is under the ownership of another. And Satan's temptation is not, hey, become a king. His temptation is win the world without dying. That's a huge appeal to the flesh. The flesh doesn't want to suffer and die. But you know, if you are the Son of God, the Son of God came to redeem the world, right? Well, if you are the Son of God, then do it. Bow down to me and I'll give them to you. It'll be redeemed. But I am the Son of God, and the Son of God came to die, so I can't do that because if I did that, then I actually wouldn't be the Son of God. Do you see it? Oh, it's brilliant. Jesus is just the best. He really is. I had a professor at the seminary, and he would go on these rants and on these weird tangents, and everybody would sit in his class, can't write fast enough, and then he would just slam his podium, and he'd go, I love the Bible! <laughs> and I didn't, I just thought he was a, you know, kind of silly, smart old man, but I'm there now. I'm there, man. I look at the Bible, and I say, man, look at this. Look at Christ resisting the temptations of Satan. This is fabulous. Be, the, the whole appeal is if you are the Son of God. But if he does what Satan says is going to prove he's the Son of God, then he actually isn't the Son of God. Brilliant. So anyway, 
Yeah, this is really great. Again, this is full of eyes. There's a whole website um, with this artwork. We have two of the books down in the library. One of them is a devotional book, uh, and then the other one is Visual Exegesis, which is just a huge collection of this uh, artwork that goes through scripture. Fabulous. I'm really hooked on this. Now, um, actually, I'll leave that up. Let's talk about this hymn a little bit. The hymn is 430 in the LSB. Um, this is My Song is Love Unknown. Do you, I don't know if folks know this hymn. Is this familiar to you, My Song is Love Unknown? Hey, great. I like it when it's an unfamiliar hymn. Um, first thing I want to say about this hymn is it didn't start off as a hymn. It started out as, just as a poem, which, if you want to get into writing hymnody, is actually the best way to go. It's better to write your text first and then write the tune to fit the text. Figure out what meter you're going to write your text in, figure out what your scheme is going to be for that, and then when it's all done, go back and say, okay, now let's compose a tune to fit this. It's a lot harder if you say, this is my tune, now I have to try and pigeonhole the text to fit that, and then your text doesn't come out as well because your text is serving the tune, and the tune is supposed to serve the text. So that's the best way to do it. So this was a Good Friday poem written by a fellow named Samuel Crossman. Um, this was in the 1600s. So actually, this is a fairly old hymn, uh, only about 100 years, a little over 100 years after the Reformation. Um, this was first published as a poetic text in a little pamphlet that Crossman published called The Young Man's Meditation or Some Few Sacred Poems Upon Select Subjects and Scriptures. I love these older titles. You know, now, if, I, if I'm writing a paper, I try and think of a title that's, that's short and catchy that people are going to read and go, huh, you know, that's kind of neat. I want to listen. What's this about? And then a subtitle that's just kind of the bare bones. ba 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 and you go, oh, okay. But, you know, in these times, and like in the 1800s, a thesis on the treatise of the scripture and what it means for you and in its practical application, what this means with various biblical passages as proof from the doctrine of the evangelical Lutheran fathers, unaltered, paying homage to C.F.W. Walther, as the, and it just goes on and on and on, and you look at it and you say, if there ever was a time, if there ever was a time to judge a book by its cover, that'd be it. <laughs> If the cover has to spill onto the next page, mm, I'll question that. It seems a little verbose. But anyway, so this is a little pamphlet that he wrote, not even a full book, just you know, a few pages, with his poems. And this is one of the poems. None of the other ones are really, okay, this is my opinion. None of the others are all that great. Um, and most of the others didn't actually stand the test of time. There are two maybe three other poems that he wrote that turned into hymns and still are around in some denominations, but they're not really well known. This one, though, is pretty well known, um, especially in the Anglican, the Anglican Church and many of the offshoots from the Anglican Church. The reason for that being Samuel Crossman was an Anglican priest, but he served a dual parish, and this is where things get spicy. Samuel Crossman served a dual parish. One of his churches was All Saints. What a great name for a church, All Saints Anglican <coughs> Church. 
And that was Anglican, obviously. And then the other church he served was a Puritan church. So he, he served double duty. The Anglicans didn't really care for the Puritans very much. And neither did the Puritans care for the Anglicans. Um, the Puritans thought the Anglicans weren't pure enough. And the Anglicans thought that the Puritans were going way too far and being way too puritanical about things. So um, he was serving these two parishes and ended up actually sympathizing with the Puritans. After he served them for a little bit and got to know what they thought and why, he gained respect for them and then decided, well, I'm going to take up the cause of the Puritans. Um, and this was a really big deal. So in 1861, there was a conference held called the Savoy Conference, which I think we've talked about here before, but I'm just going to highlight again what the Savoy Conference was. That was a collection of um, the Anglican Church and then smaller church bodies, specifically the Puritan congregations, where they tried to come to some kind of an agreement um, to where they could continue to be in fellowship with one another and continue to work together. And one of those big specific projects that they wanted to do was to revise the Book of Common Prayer, which is the Anglican hymnal. And that one's, see, we ought to learn something from the Anglicans. Because the... Book of Common Prayer is always the Book of Common Prayer. And you know, after a few years, they'll put out an, a revised Book of Common Prayer. So the Book of Common Prayer is known by its year, the, its date of publication. And uh, as I understand, I think all of the ones before, like 1972, are pretty are good, good. But then the 1972 Book of Common Prayer was not very good, and then. You have to be picky about others. I think it's 1972. But anyway, you know, the Lutherans, we could have just had the Lutheran hymnal and then just kept on, oh, we're the Lutheran church. What hymnal do you use? Well, you know, the Lutheran hymnal. And, uh, and then Lutheran hymnal 41, Lutheran hymnal uh, 56, Lutheran hymnal 82, Lutheran hymnal 2004. We could have just done that, but now we have so many different hymnals and we're trying to, you know, and then you've got all the abbreviations. Is this, is this LSB or TLH or ELH or, L or LBW or just LW? Well, which one is it? And you go, I don't know. I didn't even know what those are. Anyway, I like that. Uh, but they wanted to alter the Book of Common Prayer and update it so that it included um, provisions for the Anglicans and for the Puritans. Well, no surprises, that didn't go very well. Um, they sort of hated each other's guts, both sides did. But what ended up happening the next year, so very quickly after the Savoy Conference, Parliament, Parliament passed a law or an act called the Act of Uniformity that said, any church in England is going to be an Anglican church. They are going to use the Book of Common Prayer, and they are going to use things from the Book of Common Prayer exactly as things are printed in the Book of Common Prayer. Which I think is hilarious, because it's Parliament. Because the Anglican religion is a religion of the state. So Parliament has authority to dictate religious matters. Now, makes you glad to live where you are, where the Senate and the Congress and the President doesn't have the right to tell you. Now, if you're going to be a Christian in this country, this is how it has to be. 
The, the Lutherans sort of did encounter that with something called the Prussian Union, which was during the battle, that was in the 1800s at some point, and forgive me, I don't know the exact dates. But the Prussian Union was during the heated debates, not between uh, Lutherans and Roman Catholics, but between Lutherans and Calvinists. So different, um, different districts or regions um, would hold, according to their ruler, to either Lutheran, German Lutheranism or to Calvinism, to the Reformed faith. And eventually, uh, the Prussian Union basically said, all right, everybody, you're all going to be together. All you Calvinists and Lutherans, the state said, you're not different. We decide you're not different, and you're all going to worship together, and here are the liturgies that you're going to use, and you're going to blend your stuff together because we're tired of you arguing. And that created a bunch of problems because then a lot of Lutheran stuff that came out of that wasn't Lutheran. Um, this, is our, this is our problem, is that a lot of the stuff that came out of the Prussian Union wasn't actually Lutheran because they were combining Calvinist things together. Uh, and then it, it caused some weakness within the Lutheran church there. So this is what the Puritans didn't want, was to have the state telling them what it meant to be a Christian. And... Um, so that was a huge deal, and not only then did they say this is how it's going to be, they kicked out all of the priests that said, no, we're not going to follow that. They kicked them out. And one of them was Samuel Crossman. And uh, I, that, I want you to know, is actually very important for the story of this hymn text, because he wrote this text while he was in exile. And you remember what I have said about some of the best hymnody. It comes from persecution. persecution, conflict, hardship, loss, pain, sorrow. You look at Paul Gerhard's hymns, arguably one of the best hymn writers, period, in history, across denominations. Paul Gerhard's hymnody is phenomenal and not enough of it has been translated or set to music. Books and books of hymnody that he wrote, and all of his best hymnody was written in some of the worst periods of his life. And there is no greater testament to faith than that faith can continue to call upon God and to trust in him and make confession of its faith even in times of great sorrow that you can, with Job, still say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And uh, as an off comment, I think the church in America le needs a little bit of that. I think the church in America needs a little bit of sorrow and suffering, not that I want it to happen, but I think the church needs a little bit of that so that the church can wake up and say, ah, yes, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And Come back a little bit. This tune is called Love Unknown, after the text. It was written by a composer named John Ireland, who I wouldn't expect you to know. Uh, I know only some of what he's written. Um, he wrote some, um, a number of little folk music pieces, folk music of the British Isles, then set to different, you know, voice and piano or chamber orchestra. Um, <clears throat> Good stuff. I just don't know very much of it. This is, this is the true story of how this hymn tune came about. So he, he went out to lunch with a friend, and his friend slid a piece of paper with this text on it across the table, and he said, do you think that you could set this? 
Do you think you could compose a hymn tune for it? And Ireland looked at it and he went, yeah. And then he turned his menu over, took out a pen and went and he composed the tune on the back of the menu and then he slid it back across, he said, there you go. And he did it in less than 15 minutes. And that's the tune that is most commonly associated with this hymn and it's a fabulous tune. I, I have some commentary as always here on the text. I would really urge you just to take a look at that text. This text really is good, good text. This is one of those few um, Lenten hymns, and this was intended for Good Friday, that actually is focused on nothing but the love of Christ, which is so, uh, so wonderful. Sometimes in Holy Week, we can get away from the fact that all of this is taking place out of the Father um, and his son's great love for us and focus so much on Jesus is dying, Jesus is dead. Look at Jesus, there's blood on his head. And you just, hey, I just made that up, by the way, so uh, I'll be here all week. Um, we get sort of sometimes sidetracked during Holy Week and Good Friday because that's what we, well, Jesus is dying, Jesus is dying, black, par black paraments or no paraments and, and this and that and this and that. And then when, when during that period, and of course, you know, the Good Friday liturgy has the reproaches, which is, that's part of the big Good Friday liturgy, the reproaches where you come to church and the pastor stands up there and reads the reproaches and says, you have hated me and you have killed me and look what you have done to me and all I ever did to you was love you and why have you done this to me? And, you know, there's the reproaches of Good Friday. And that's a paraphrase, but that's kind of, you can't go to the, good, the chief Good Friday service where, we, where there are the reproaches and then leave going, yeah, I feel really good about Good Friday today. <laughs> it's kind of like you can't ever watch The Passion of the Christ and then, you know, have the credits be scrolling up and go, huh, well, you want to go out and get ice cream after that? <laughs> it, just, it just doesn't work. Um, so anyway, you know, but this is one of those where you really, it looks at the passion from the standpoint of, this is what the Lord has done for me out of love. Yes, he dies, and yes, he was beaten and bruised, but why? What is the deeper meaning behind all of this? And it is that he loves. And then, of course, there's this, there's this little wax seal I have here, which is Latin. It says, Ecce agnus Dei, uh, Ecce agnus Dei, qui tolet peccatam. Uh, excuse me. Pecatamundi, which is, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is an old, I think this is medieval, uh, an old wax seal. Actually, this might be pre-medieval. I don't remember it. I have to look the date up. An old wax seal from a Christian congregation. Now, let's listen to the tune, and then we'll sing one, three, four, and seven together. Um, this is the tune. We'll listen to two stanzas here and then we'll jump in and do one, three, four, seven.
Okay, stanza one. My song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die. Three, sometimes they strew his way, and his sweet praises sing, resounding all the day, hosannas to their King. Then crucify is all their breath, and for his death they thirst and cry. Why, what hath my Lord done? What makes this rage and spite? Though he gave the blind to run, he gave the blind their sight. Sweet injuries, yet they at these themselves displease and against him rise. Stanza 7. Here might I stay and sing No story so divine Never was love, dear King Never was grief like thine This is my friend In whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. See you at the altar.